0: Fit toys.
1: We are sponsored this week by Apostrophe. It's a prescription skincare company that uh, offers science-backed oral and topical medications that are clinically proven to help clear up acne. I uh, battled acne when I was a teenager, and and contrary to popular belief, not a lot of fun. Uh, so if you're interested in trying Apostrophe, uh, we got a special deal for you guys. You can save $15 off your first visit with an apostrophe provider at apostrophe.com slash mental when you use our offer code mental. And this code is only available to you guys. So to get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash mental and then click begin visit. Then use our code mental at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. That's A P O S T R O. -O 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 P-H-E com slash mental and then remember use that code mental to get your dermatologist crafted treatment plan for five dollars and many thanks to Apostrophe for sponsoring the podcast. Welcome to episode 582 with my guest Joe M. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions Past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm a jackass. I'm certified. I actually have a couple of trophies uh, that I won in jackassery. You may ask yourself, Paul, where do these jackassery contests take place? Well, they take place everywhere. Anywhere that you would find your run-of-the-mill sidewalk jackass. How How did I get so off fucking track? 40 seconds into the podcast. The website for this show is metalpod.com. Metalpod, also the social media handle you can follow us at. Let's dive into some surveys. This, Oh, one note about the, the interview with Joe. Um, the person who helped me edit it said, you might want to have a trigger warning because some of the uh, descriptions of uh, sexual surrogacy get, it gets a little graphic. Um, so putting that out there. This is from the FEARS survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Baguette, and she writes, I fear being abandoned, especially in romantic relationships. I start relationships with the near certainty that I am not good enough, not pretty enough, not intelligent, funny, attractive, wise, understanding, or accepting enough. Every time my partner leaves, like no joking, even when they go to the toilet, I can feel a tiny feeling of panic rising up. When they leave for longer than a few hours, I literally tear up and cannot do anything but wait in anxiety for them to come back. It ruins my mental health and I usually end up exhausted. I overanalyze everything they do, trying to find evidence that they are in fact abandoning me. I also usually engage in relationships with people who confirm my fears, i.e. cheating, losing interest, not making any effort in the relationship, etc. So in a way, my fears come true because I make them come true. And that leaves me with an even greater conviction that I am indeed unlovable and not good enough. There is help for you, Bagat. There are a lot of support groups that deal with fear of intimacy and I've been going to one for 13 years and it it helps it's amazing how we will repeat the patterns of trauma or abandonment from from childhood even we can even be intellectually conscious that that's what we're doing but there's still this compulsion and we can even be like repulsed by somebody who who is present and interested in us It said, the fucking brains are so weird. Maybe that should be the name of this podcast, fucking brains. Uh, This is from the love survey filled out by a broke-ass student, and they write, I love it when strangers ask me for directions. Even if I can't help them, I love the chance if I can. I love the smell of rain at the seaside. I love a long hug. I love it when I sweat at the gym and feel all my muscles move. I love it when me and my roommate wear the same perfume on accident, but it smells totally different on our skin. I love discovering a new song that reflects my current mood. I love having a glass of wine with my dad. We always end up talking for a long time. I love that one. I love swimming naked in the sea. Everyone should try that. I love doing that as well. I love my grandma's gnocchi. And by that, I assume you mean her butthole. I love it when a friend texts me first. I love booking an airplane ticket. And I love dancing like crazy in front of the mirror by myself. And I love listening to your podcast. I look forward to it every week. Thank you for everything. Well, thank you for those awesome loves. And say, how to your grandma's butthole for me. Why? Why do I always have to make butthole jokes? Because inside, I'm seven years old. And it makes me laugh. And it's my podcast. This is from the FEARS survey as well, filled out by... uh, actually that was the love survey this is a fear survey and this is filled out by Patrick and he writes I'm about to move across the country for graduate school I am so fucking scared that after I leave all of my friends are going to forget about me that the second I'm gone it'll be a massive relief to all of them and then when I come back to visit everyone will dodge me and I'll never see them again even now As the moving day is only a few weeks out, I find myself deeply alarmed by the number of people wishing me luck and not expressing sadness that I will be leaving. This causes a bit of self-hatred because why the hell do I want them to be sad? Why can't I just be thankful that so many people believe in me to succeed? I think deep down, I have this fear that there's a secret coalition of all my friends who deep down cannot stand me. They treat me kindly, but the moment I leave the room, it's all snickers and laughing at what a loser I am. I have no reason to suspect this, but holy fuck, I feel like I'm on the verge of proving this conspiracy at any given moment. Oh, that is fantastic. And Patrick, there's a lot of people that have that same thing going through their heads. And to get on my soapbox, one of the things that's so great about support groups is you get to have, if you choose to, really deep conversations with people, and it's a chance to get out of yourself. You know, one of the one of the momentums that keep us stuck in sick thinking is just keeping it trapped inside our head because then we just obsess about ourselves more. And that is home field advantage for the sick part of our brain. You really want to help that sick part of your brain, start sharing it with other people in an appropriate environment, not behind people in line at the coffee shop, as I have sadly found out. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Rachel, and she writes, Paul, I've been listening to you since the beginning, and I always hear you and your guests speak about how much therapy has helped them. I have tried 10 therapists in the past two years, each one worse than the last, from not showing up to appointments, to conducting sessions with their kids in the room, to asking for me to sit up straight so she could tell by my posture whether I'm a psychopath, in parentheses, not kidding. The amount of unprofessionalism has been disturbing. I've tried online therapy, in-person therapy, psychologists, mental health counselors, and social workers. I feel extremely frustrated, and I want to know if you know of anyone else who has had this many horror experiences from therapy and whether you think I should keep trying. Well, I absolutely think you should keep trying, and I have not heard of anyone with that many horror stories and with that degree of fucked up horror stories. So I would say that is definitely, you are an outlier on that one. Um, But there are bad therapists out there. But the good news is, is there are a ton of good therapists. And sometimes it takes a while for us to find a, a match with them. Which leads me to, of course, our sponsor this week. As always, we are sponsored by BetterHelp online therapy. And uh, I've tried several different therapists at BetterHelp, Um, not because any of them were bad. I just wanted to do a sampling so I could share that I did experience a a wide variety of experienced, compassionate therapists. And um, the nice thing about BetterHelp is you can change therapists at any time. So you could just Keep trying therapist after therapist and, and until you find one that clicks. Um, so this month, BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp Online Therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and you guys get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com mental. That's betterhel dot mental. We are sponsored this week by Workable. Are you looking to hire? Well, it doesn't matter what size your company is. Maybe you're a multinational conglomerate. Maybe you're just a simple, shy guy sitting in your closet selling brooms. I hope you're wearing a yachting cap well workable can help workable accelerates every step of your hiring process from the finding to the hiring it helps you cast the widest net possible by posting your jobs to all the top job boards that's more than 200 in total with just one click it helps you evaluate and hire quickly with modern tools like video interviews and e-signatures And Workable will help you automate repetitive tasks like scheduling interviews so you can spend your time on what's important. Listening to this podcast, no, making hires. So whether you're hiring for your broom closet or your multinational corporation, Workable is exactly what you need to hire the right people fast. And then finally, this is uh, just a portion of a shame and secret survey filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself 1M. And uh, Darkest Thought, she writes I relish tragedy and chaos. Whenever there is a huge story on the news, I don't want it to end. I know it's absolutely horrible to feel this way. For example, 9 11 or the recent shooting in Florida. I wasn't horrified the way I should have been. I was transfixed. I desperately wanted to be in the middle of it so that I could do something to help the victims. I think it might come from my desire to be a part of something bigger than myself. In in a way, I in no way way identify with the criminals. I wish nothing but the worst for them. I think there's a card for that. Uh, Maybe it has something to do with the unifying effect such events have on people. It's unfortunate that it takes such horrific tragedies to bring us together in today's day and age, but the effects are irrefutable. One of the reasons I wanted to read this is I very much understand and relate to what you are expressing. And I've always felt like, how fucked up am I? Like when the earthquake hit here in California, it was a fucking horror show. But there was something that was deeply comforting to me because it focused uh, my, my attention on whatever the need was at hand. And I also find myself drawn to documentaries about shit that's really dark and sad and I find this sick comfort in it. I don't I don't know if it's because it makes me feel like I'm in a safe little cocoon and that my life really is better than I think it is. I, I, I don't know. Um, but thank you for sharing that. And then the other thing I wanted to read from uh, her survey is um, a description of of her father she writes while I am not a qualified professional by any means I will take the leap and say that my dad is a psychopath/ sociopath I suffered abuse by proxy my mom was taking the brunt of the abuse behind closed doors to protect my sister and I I didn't know until years after we'd gotten him out of our lives just how badly she suffered I've only I've only recently come to realize that I am suffering from witnessing however subliminally that abuse. For example, my sister is in a solid relationship with a great guy. They just had a baby together. I cannot be in their house when he is there without feeling strong anxiety waiting for a fight to break out. If a man in any situation raises his voice, my anxiety spikes. I suppose it's a level of PTSD. I haven't been diagnosed and haven't really been to a professional to work out my admittedly extensive issues. My dad also crossed the line from discipline to abuse more than a few times. His shoe and his belt were his favorite, and he would start arguments with me because he knew I'd snap back and then use that as an excuse to ground me or come at me with one of the two, usually to the head. There's more, obviously. I haven't spoken to him in years at this point, but I did Google him. I learned that he was arrested for impersonating a police officer, carrying a concealed weapon without a license, and possession of cannabis and paraphernalia. Not gonna lie, I laughed. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse.
0: And when you find them, it's a great feeling.
1: And I'm suddenly feeling horrible about (laughs) making that joke, but that's how far I will go to get a laugh because I am empty inside. Ah, you're in the right place. I am here with Joe M., who I know from a uh, support group. And we were talking the other day, and we were talking uh, about your story and a couple of the things I was like. Wow, we—I don't think we've talked about that uh, specifically, at least at length, on the podcast. And the the, the two things I want to talk about are uh, sexual anorexia and uh, having a sexual surrogate. Uh, but before we get to that, let's let's just give the listener a little feel for kind of your story, your background. Uh, You're how old?
0: i am thirty six got I had to think about that one <laughs> yeah. thirty six years old uh first I want to say it's an honor and a privilege to be on your podcast long time listener oh. and uh listeners uh, Gracie is just as cute in person
1: she listeners hopefully only. she'll she'll pipe down <laughs> um so you were raised uh where and kind of what kind of uh was the emotional temperature <laughs> of your upbringing oh it was hot and cold let's see So i was raised here in
0: in uh in la and um uh i would say it was a very unique upbringing my mother ran the family so um she was in charge my dad was kind of in the background um and he was he was meek to the point i mean he was a meek man he was really meek so my mother was the dominant force And so, my mother, being a feminist, I grew up in this really feminist household. Um, But you know, it was like this second wave, sex-negative feminism. But it was she. She's also an addict, Um, and I think that she, from what I heard, bits and pieces over the years, um, my belief is that the way my grandfather horrifically abused her and the whole family, Mm -hmm. he was an alcoholic, abusive alcoholic, and I think that. Um, that hatred and fear, because there was sexual abuse as well, that hatred and fear of male sexuality was kind of imparted onto me. Men, male sexuality was demonized and was talked about, nothing about, it was all about rape and assault and and all of that kind of stuff and, and equating, you know, male genitalia to, you know, uh, rape trauma. Like that's all that could be. And I think that that was the beginning of that because my mother went on these rages because I think the she just never dealt with those issues. And so she would just rage at me and my dad. And I would see her raging at my dad and I would take that in as, oh, he did something wrong. So I started like siding with my mom every time they had a fight, which I really, you know, I feel terrible about that now because I thought I was in the right. I thought I was, you know, that's what I was supposed to do. Right. Uh, so... I never felt emotionally safe at home because there was always the chance that mom would let me keep mom calm. You know, Mm -hmm. my dad never said that to me, but that's like, that became my job because he was emotionally wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So it was my job to be like a substitute, you know, uh, um, spouse. So surrogate. Yes. (laughs) I was avoiding
1: that word because it also has a positive meaning. Yeah. Uh, Um, And what do you think kind of led your dad being how he was um was was there an addiction? was he just kind of wrapped up in his own demons in his head what what uh any sense as to why he was so checked out or the 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 ways in which he would check out were there things that he would use to check out
0: well um I know that it's it's strange. Whenever I think about my childhood and I think about my trauma and, and abuse, I think of my mother primarily. My dad, he never raised a hand to me. Neither of them did because they're both social workers and they both were – well, at least my mom was physically abused. I don't know about my dad. He never talked about any of that stuff. He never brought it up. He never mentioned it. My mom hinted that there were things that had happened, but she never talked to me about it. I think he just wanted to lock it all away and never discuss it again. But I do get the idea that my grandfather, my dad's side, my dad's dad was uh, abusive and overbearing, um, and would kind of go after him. My dad's always been a heavily pensive person, mm-hmm. and I think that he used that as a tool to like kind of go off in his head as a way to cope with things. Um, um, and uh, you know, he he would also, and once in a while, once in a great while. He would have like a fit over usually a financial fear of some kind. Mm-hmm. So, my mother handled the money. She wouldn't let him near it because he was just obsess all the time about it. And we never were in, in dire financial straits. We were always fine. I'm very grateful for that. But he didn't, he wouldn't know because he didn't look at it. But if there was some big expense, he would kind of go, Oh, and he would sit in a chair and put his head yeah. in his hands. Sometimes he would actually turn red. He would start like having like a thing. Um, that was the only time I really saw him get upset. The rest of the time, he was just very kind of neutral dial tone. Um, and he would be happy, and he was very, very intellectual. Both of my parents were.
1: Boy, you are describing <laughs> my family dynamic. I mean, my mom was was not to, to the degree. I, I suppose where my mom was different was she crossed – boundaries and and, you know kind of physical boundaries not you know beating or anything but kind of sexualizing right and she didn't demonize sex it just it wasn't talked about but my dad was very very much like your dad and do you find it hard sometimes to get in touch with the anger that you at your dad because he wasn't there
0: yeah i think um we could never talk about those things I just felt like it he would never open up about them that so my dad uh passed away last year and in the months leading up to his passing when he was he got the terminal diagnosis and he they said six months to a year and six months later on the dot he was gone um he I think something in him did change um we had you know we had a moment where I was driving and this is my fault I was driving back from a trip we had taken and I thought he was asleep and I was kind of venting to my friend about how he never apologized ever in his, ever in child unless my mother made him and I knew that because they would fight about it and it's like they thought I could not hear. I don't know why they thought I couldn't hear through the door. I could hear very well what they were arguing about and he would come and apologize and I remember there was a moment when he was sitting at the chair and it was months later. I mean, this Mm -hmm. wasn't during, months later, he just brought it up and I was like, Oh, I. Sorry, I didn't realize you were awake. I apologize. And he said, "And he said, I'm sorry."
1: Mm. And, and did it, it feel the,
0: genuine? The first, it was genuine. Yeah. I think. I think it was. It was more like he didn't understand what he had done wrong, but mm. he he was trying to to make amends. The it social worker it, and him. It wasn't a like, heartfelt. Yeah. It, it was. There wasn't a connection to it. Uh. But yeah, that that was that was nice. And I kind of am still I was taken aback by that. I don't know how to respond to that because it was. I never expected any to make kind of reconcile with either of them around yeah. this stuff.
1: And uh, did your mom uh, apologize for anything? <laughs> um, she would occasionally
0: her three her three ways we would go, and we've had a few arguments in recent recent weeks and months that uh, were just stuffs coming up because I'm working on it in therapy, so it's agitated. Mm-hmm. Uh, she goes three routes when we talk about this stuff. This uh, um. Um, defensive dismissive you know mm-hmm. she will um she will play the the victim card or she will uh, say you're right i'm a piece of shit i'm a horrible mother' like the, none of this leads to any, anything no,
1: <laughs> no, which is still making it all about her right yeah,
0: so you know i never she she never really she went into a recovery program and worked it for a while and then left. So she has some kind of recovery,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, but emotionally, I don't think she ever worked through that stuff. And, you know, and also, well, she has a master's degree in psychology, so she knows best. Yeah. That's the other thing. Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> It's amazing how we can intellectually know what is the right path, but emotionally, we can be so derailed. And I can't imagine how much emotionally she had on her plate, you know, what she went through in childhood. Living as a woman in our society, Ugh. um yeah. having a spouse she felt disconnected from i mean that that had to have been really hard for her, which is not to excuse uh that stuff, but like I yeah. have compassion for my mom. I don't have a relationship with her because it's not healthy for me, but i I have compassion for for what we what what she went through as a kid, and I think for a lot of people. As they recover and go through therapy, it's really hard to hold those two things at the same time. Yeah. Um, but I think it's it's hard to experience stillness and a sense of peace and safety in the world if we still allow toxic people to to cross our our boundaries, and we tend to think, well, I can't um set this boundary or really stick to this boundary with them because then they'll be a lonely they'll be lonely or this or that and it keeps us so stuck from have you ever um like what are some of the boundaries that that you have set or tried to set with your oh, mom
0: i mean and i'll i'll saying to your point i will also say that um as an addict uh being around toxic people is bad for my health like it will it can trigger me to go back to old behaviors or at least go into a dark mental place so i have to i do have to i don't know if i i don't know if i call my mom a toxic person i guess she is i don't want to put that on her but certainly i she has toxic moments her, she has toxic moments and being around her is triggering and i have to i have to avoid i have to minimize contact uh but i will say that i have set boundaries that she has let's say mostly adhered to mm-hmm. uh one of them is um so the first addiction that i dealt with was around food so i was i used to be morbidly obese um and so part of that was her constantly criticizing my body all the time and i don't it wasn't from a from a place of um of like malice, it was. It was. She was uncomfortable. She felt insecure about her body, and then she would kind of put that on me as well.
1: And you, because she was worried about my weight, right? Worried about your health that yeah. that you might die. Exactly.
0: And it, it wasn't until when she went into that recovery program that. I think maybe she started to understand there was a different way to proceed because, unfortunately, for an addict, when you just point out their behavior, the stress of that can just cause them to, to do more of yeah. the behavior. Or it's a mental illness. Um, so I did set a boundary with her. I said, no comments about my body, please. None. No comments. And uh, she mostly adheres to that, but she forgets sometimes and we have an argument about it. Mm-hmm. I also had her stop buying me clothes because she would buy me clothes that w- was that weren't flattering for me. Um, a few years back, uh, I had put on a little bit of weight and she said, what's your size and told her, well, I'm a large. She she, she said, mm, and then didn't say anything. And then when, when the holidays came around, she got me shirts in large and extra large and I gave her the extra large back. I'm saying, sorry, these don't fit me. I can't wear them. You know, it's just that kind of behavior, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff was really get under my skin. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, I think those are the two boundaries that I've set with her. And you know, she—I got her to stop buying me clothes entirely. Although she, she would then she'd go back. Well, you didn't. You said shirts, sure, not. And I was like, mm-hmm.
1: I'll
0: take. You know, I'll, I'll take this. This is a nice shirt. I'll wear it. That's not a big deal. But you know, so it—it's—it's it's tricky. And I do. I'm starting to get the understanding that whether intentionally or not, there's some gaslighting there of like mm-hmm. making me feel like, oh, I'm I'm the crazy one, right? And and um, I I say right at this moment, I love my mother, but I don't like her very much.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people are nodding nodding their head <laughs> because they have that relationship with a family a family member. Um, th- there was a metaphor that I. I I realized years ago, kind of described what it felt like being overwhelmed by my mom. And it was that she was an octopus and I would Mm -hmm. hold one tentacle at bay and there were seven others and it was just so over. And the other metaphor, I don't know metaphor analogy is a cactus that wants a hug. Oh my God. That, that because it's so hard sometimes to put into words how we feel with a complicated relationship with, with somebody. And we don't want to demonize them. But I think part of claiming our own story and finding out what our own boundaries are is getting honest about how we feel, how overwhelmed or disrespected or, or you know, how much we we do truly love that person um, or love parts of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: And I I, I don't think I want to break contact with her, but I will say, like, there was a moment when we I was agitated we got into an argument about we were talking about something and I, she said well you know that was your that was your body image issue stuff and I said where do you think I got that from like I couldn't stop myself from just mm. like throwing that at her um, you know and yeah it's 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 difficult and one she has awareness because she said to me the last time we had an argument she said well when I was in therapy I didn't like my mother much either <laughs> So, there's something there that she
1: connects yeah. to. And so, when did the the acting out um, outside of food uh, yeah. begin, and what did that look like? I think
0: so. I identify in a few different ways. Um, mainly, I'm a sexual anorexic. So that the, the way I define that is, I compulsively avoid uh, sexual behavior. I can also identify as a love avoidant, avoiding love. Uh, And love addiction being caught up in the euphoric effects of romance. So the love addiction showed up first because I was just wanting attention from women. Because of the way that my mom treated me and my dad, um, I viewed myself as this bad, evil thing that didn't deserve love, didn't deserve nice things. And my job was to punish myself and to pay penance for, now I know, for my grandfather who I'd never met uh, but I know him through the shadow of the trauma that it's that he's placed all over our family um or through his addiction. um, so I think that that started first, so it was just hanging around women or girls, I guess in the, when I was younger girls and getting attention, doing anything I could to get attention from them i had a i was always and it's the thing i'm I'm learning is I always was a sweet kid. I didn't have to become that, and I think that energy was very attractive. Uh, when girls were around, all these other guys who were, you know, blowing up the universe and running around and playing with guns and stuff like that. Like I was, I always wanted to hang out with the girls and, and I was very quiet and a very quiet inner safe energy. I think they were attracted to that. So I think I kind of fed off of that to try to get what I didn't get from my mother in childhood. um,
1: And the and, sexual. And was there a part of you that, that didn't want to get them let them get too close you know because oh, yes i something that you shared that i think some people might be confused about is being a love addict and a love avoidant at the same time at the same time <laughs> and a lot of people are like well, what the fuck is that? It, isn't it one or no we can go back and forth between the two it's it like ping pong yeah it's like you want to control how close people get to you you want them to be in your life but and to give you the feelings that you're looking for, but to leave you alone when you want to be left alone. And it can be oh, really weird. unfair to them. It is. And it's like the way we control is anorexics as we withhold. And I think
0: the love addiction is not addiction to love itself. And I think that's where people get confused and rightly so, because it's not really explained. It's the addiction to the euphoric effects of romance or holding a torch for unavailable people and chasing after them all the time or, um, getting attached to people without knowing them. So I create a fantasy in my head about who this person is and get attached to them through that fantasy, but that's not who they are. And Oh, by the way, it's, you know, the second date. So maybe I don't know them yet. (laughs) Um, so I think for me, I was terrified. I didn't realize this. I started my recovery program, but I was terrified of women. I really was terrified of them because of the way my mom, um, but the way what happened with my mom and I think, you know, as women are half the world, <laughs> mm-hmm. I managed to just make that work and I started to desensitize that fear by going out in the world and living my life. But in the area of, of sex and romance, that was that was the scary like that never really got that, that one. I could not tread in because that level of intimacy uh, terrified me and I didn't I wasn't connected enough to myself because of my disease to really know what I wanted to really be in touch with that and to love myself because I can't love someone else unless I love myself, and I didn't start loving myself fully until I got into my my programs mm. you know I, it's, I i I'd like to say we remember how to love ourselves because we don't we're not born hating ourselves we right. we get taught how to
1: do that, yeah. And you had mentioned before we started recording that compulsive masturbation uh, yes. has been uh, something that you've battled in your life. When did, when did that start? Uh, how did it progress? And what's that look like today?
0: In the same way like, like uh, sexual anorexia, I was, uh, you know, I was a late bloomer compared to most people, not mm-hmm. good or bad, just a comparison. Uh, I didn't start actually masturbating until I was 21. And when I was a teenager, like, there was some block there that I was not really aware of what that was about, like, maybe a, a disgust of my body, because I was taught that everything male was, like, d- d- demonized everything male. Like, that also applied to my penis. Like, I didn't want to, like, deal with it. It was this ugly thing I didn't want to do, touch, and, and uh, only when necessary, I think. And then something switched when I turned 21. I know that this ties into compulsive masturbation always existed with pornography addiction. And I started looking at pornography when I was 15. It was the file folder under the bed of my dad's friend, and he, or my, uh, my friend's dad, rather. And we, he'd pull it out and he'd show me pictures. And then uh, we would do that for a few years. And I'd just look at them. And then I discovered internet pornography and I would just stare at it for years. And then when I turned 21, compulsive masturbation became part of that. And it was this vicious cycle. And I learned later, the more I engaged in that, the longer I engaged in it, the, the wider the gulf between me and intimacy with myself, because it was not a way to love my body and connect. It was a way to, to disconnect and to numb out mm-hmm. whatever was going on at the time.
1: Yeah. And, and another great complicated topic, because masturbation in a in a healthy way can be nurturing and self-loving oh, yeah. and, you know, not a bad thing at all, but it's- it's what is our intent? Is our intent to escape our life, Yeah, you know, to contribute to the cycle of shame? Or is it to have a relief so we can get on with our day?
0: Right. Mm. Ugh. and And so that became a long process in recovery of learning when it was healthy and when it wasn't. And not to, if it wasn't healthy, that didn't mean I would have been a bad person. Mm-hmm. As a friend of mine said, I called him up once, he said, nobody died because you masturbated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so it's like it was helpful to remind myself of that, that you know, I'm I'm uh you know, I'm I'm in progress. I'm always in progress. You know, I'm never perfect. So
1: and so um let's talk about uh, the sexual surrogacy. Sure. Um I, um, I
0: came in the program, uh, it'll be in a week, I will have five years, which I'm very grateful for. Um, just- Congratulations, ac- by the way. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Um, very, I'm very, very happy about that and very grateful for the recovery. And um, I, uh, one of the things that got me into this program was, you know, sexual anorexics uh, will have these binges. So go through these extreme cycles of deprivation that have binges. I wasn't actually having sex with anyone. Uh, in fact, up until the surrogacy, I was a virgin, which is why part of the reason why I went to it. Uh, I would my binges looked like compulsive masturbation in like bathroom stalls and in cars. I would park the car. I would roll the seat back so no one could see me. But I kind of wanted to be near people. Mm-hmm. And I remember I talked to my therapist about that years later. And he was like, yeah, it sounds like you just wanted to be sexual with somebody, but you didn't know how to connect. And uh, that stopped for a while. I went into my my food program, and then four years later, I wanted to ask this woman out. And when it came to that moment of opportunity, I kind of denied my own feelings. It was almost like some weird psych- psychic mutilation, and and that triggered another acting out session in a car. Um, and that brought me into program, and um, I spent years learning to love myself and and sitting with myself and and taking myself out on, you know, what we call self dates and all this kind of stuff. And then suddenly I was ready to date and um, I started dating and uh, I was just exploded. Like I, I had such, I had gone from sexual self-hatred to sexual low self-esteem. So I had made progress,
1: (laughs) huge, huge (laughs) progress. But I'm
0: like, do women like me? I don't know. Am I, cause the last time I tried dating a few times throughout my twenties, like it Never got any responses on the websites. Of course, I wasn't reaching out. I was waiting for someone to talk to me. Um, so I just got just it was like three dates every week. And it was just like, I couldn't even believe it. I was just so bowled over by that. I was kind of enamored with the process of dating. And I was learning what I wanted. Uh, and I, I learned a lot. And I had a lot of wonderful experiences. And I had a lot of the experiences most of us have in dating the good ones and the bad ones. But there was something missing and i i had an i was uh had a date open in my uh, apartment and we were being physically intimate and i was just i was just terrified and i i i was like i didn't know what to do i was gonna make a mistake um so i kind of rushed it and i did i did move too fast and she was nice about it it wasn't some huge problem mm-hmm. but it tra- it really triggered me um and and so like i had that experience and not long after that my dad um, started to really go downhill in his cancer. So I took a break from dating and I went to my sponsor and I said, you know, this, this is not shifting. And he said, what about surrogate partner therapy? And I had heard about it, but I didn't really know what it was or what you can do in surrogate partner therapy. Um, so I did, I just went into a meeting in my recovery program. And I made that announcement in my share. Does anyone know where I can get information about this? And uh, of course this was in zoom times, which is great. Mm -hmm. So I got a chat message from somebody, a friend of mine who I'll be forever grateful for. And she said, go to this place. It's called the center for healthy sex and it's in Westwood. Um,
1: which is Los Angeles for our listeners. Yes. Mm -hmm.
0: And, um, they work with surrogates because some, some, um, some don't. Some don't know what they are, and then some do. And I went and got a therapist there, and I talked to him. And I in the first session, I said, I think I need surrogate partner therapy. And I had watched this video he had sent me. And it was really funny. It was uh, talking about what surrogate partner therapy was. And the way she described it is, oh, your therapist will work with you for a few months and, hmm. and kind of get an idea. And he was just like right away. He was just like, nope, yeah,
1: you need that. <laughs> so uh and and how did you feel about that were you excited about trying that was it fraught with anxiety probably fraught with anxiety mixed bag kind of what was
0: every feeling under the rainbow because what i what i want to make clear about sexual anorexia is that we want to have sex it's not we do want to have it We just are terrified of it. So there's this constant reaching out in a very kind of anorexic kind of meager way and then pulling ourselves back because, no, no, I can't. The fear is so intense that we can't – we just can't push through it. And uh, a lot of anorexics – I would say every anorexic that I've spoken to, maybe bar one, um, has had some sexual experiences – Um, they're just a low number of experiences. So being a virgin in your thirties is something that I had a lot of shame around and I didn't, I didn't know how to talk about it. And everyone I talked to in program is very loving about it, but you know, it's, it's, you're in a kind of a room of your own. There's no one who really understands your experience. Um, so I did feel a little isolated in that way. So I, you know, when I, when he, you know, the way it works, as you go to a therapist who works with surrogates, you tell them you were interested in that therapy. They think you need it. They eval- they clearly they say okay, and they contact surrogates for you so that the client cannot contact the surrogate directly. Um, and so he looked this was right around when the vaccine was about to come out. So I was still doing this all through Zoom um, to just to be safe. And I remember he sent me a link to her website, to Liz's website. Uh, and I clicked on it, and um, the link went straight to her bio, and it had her picture there. And I remember just looking at her picture and going, wow, she, she I've never seen someone more attractive. And that was really shock. That was like a really big moment for me because I had realized later I had been dating women I wasn't attracted to when I first started dating because mm-hmm. I you know, the, the self-esteem – and, and like that's another way I could hide, because it would never go anywhere, because I wasn't attracted to them. Um, and so when I saw her and how attractive she was, there was a part of me that knew that that could go somewhere, and that scared me. That terrified that trauma part was of me.
1: Was there a right? specific fear
0: around it? Um, it was very vague, and it took me a while to kind of get, get to terms with it. Um, but at the time, it was just this... Um, it was just this this vague fear, uh, of just feeling not good enough, feeling like, oh, I don't. And I remember when we actually met up in the Zoom, like uh, my therapist and I talked for a minute, and then uh, she logged in and I saw her picture on the camera. My first thought was how, like, even more so, like how amazingly beautiful this person is, and the second thought was, I don't deserve to be with someone like this, you know. Which I made a mental note of to talk to my therapist. Like, we got to talk about this. This is a problem. Um, and we talked for a little while and when she started talking, it's like everything that we talked about and everything was just clicking and connecting. Um, and I remember I even liked abuse and attracted to the sound of her voice, but also when we started to connect and talk to each other, there was that intellectual connection and I started to feel kind of the beginning of an emotional connection. And I literally, you know, being a spiritual program, I felt my higher powers hand on my shoulder, her work with her. Um, and so we met, we made it to the end and there were two boundaries that she set as part of the work. The first one was we could only contact each other outside of the sessions if it was to reschedule an appointment. So we'd only interact in the sessions mm-hmm. once a week. And the second thing was once I had reached my clinical goals, we would do closure two closure sessions and then we would never have contact again. That, those were the two rules.
1: Um, and, and how did you feel about those in the beginning?
0: I accepted them. Uh, and also at the beginning, I had no idea where it would go or if it would go anywhere. The thing about surrogate partner therapy, which is different from pretty much any other therapy I've ever heard of, is that when you're working with a therapist, there's a much like bigger, um, even though it's professional intimacy, but there is a wall around, what you yeah. know, a therapist doesn't talk to you about what they, what's going on with them, right. which is how this was different. And because there has to be authentic intimacy and authentic attraction, mutual attraction between the surrogate and the client in order for this all to work, mm-hmm. at any point in the process, she could have sat me down and said, this is as far as I'm comfortable going. Like, I'm not feeling a connection here. If you want to continue, you can find another surrogate. So that was always, that uncertainty
1: was there. Wow. That must have been so terrifying. Yep. <laughs> it really was. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, let's talk about the, the experience when you, I assume you lost your virginity. I did. Yes. Uh, um, did it, was the physicality something that started small and grew per her instruction or was it, um, did you start meeting in person right away? Where did you meet?
0: So we met, just so to give kind of a timeline of it, and every client's different, and every client needs different things. Uh, we started working together in May. We met in April. We both decided to wait until two weeks after our second vaccine shot so that we were mm-hmm. fully vaccinated. So we said, okay, that's you know, this date in May. So we met on that date. And that first date, uh, date uh, kind of was like a date, uh, we just talked that's all we should. We're just going to talk the first session. And there was a, a I mean, surrogates are trained on, under sex therapists for over a year. So they, you know, and she already she had a bachelor's in psychology as well. Mm-hmm. So they, there's a very specific process that they go through. They tailor it to the client, mm-hmm. but it's very gradual. You think of the normal dating process. It, it, it was a date in a way. It was very specific, uh, but slowed down.
1: Mm-hmm. And I assume she was friends with your mom will <laughs> tell you a founder.
0: That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like, like two peas in a pod. Oh, my God. Imagine. Uh, but, yeah, so I – one of the things she said is she said, what are your clinical goals? And it, it, completely terrified, I said exactly what I wanted, which is really hard for an anorexic. I said, I want to have sex, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, that's not guaranteed. And I said, oh, of course. And she already already gotten that email from him saying that. Mm-hmm. And I said, I know it's not guaranteed, I understand, you can't guarantee intimacy. But I said it out loud to her, and that was great for me, you know. But she didn't want the pressure of that. um, Mm -hmm. Because she gets to decide, she has full autonomy on what she does with her client and when. And then she asked me, hey, are you ready? We wanna do this thing, are you ready? So we slowly built up physical and emotional intimacy. And that first meeting, we just talked about stuff, what we were interested in. It was just like a first date. Remember, I casually mentioned that I had done d and a couple times when I was younger. And she went off on like a half hour like on D&D and all the stuff she does. Dungeons and, and
1: Dragons. Yes, yeah, sorry, Dungeons okay. and Dragons.
0: And I was just like, okay, you know way more about this than me. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and listen because <laughs> I, can,
1: I can't contribute to
0: this. What is what is that term? I've never heard that term. Right. Um, and that we just really were connecting. And it, I didn't have to do anything. You know, I just had to be there and just answer questions. And then the second session... We did the first touch, and it was a hand caress. So it was, I touch her hand, and then we switch, and she touches mine. And she said, do you want to go first? I said, sure. And she said, okay. I want you to touch my hand in a way that brings you pleasure. And I just could not, I had no idea what she was talking about emotionally. I had never thought about pursuing my own pleasure before. I had thought, well, I'm going to be of service to my partner, and I guess my pleasure will just show up or something. Mm -hmm. And she was the first person that taught me, I have to pursue my own pleasure. I have to do what feels good. That's my job Mm -hmm. Um, to know what I want and to communicate that, but also to then do what feels good in the moment. And so I touched her hand and I don't know that I touched it in a way that was pleasurable. I think I tried, but it was like learning a new. it was like remembering a long long forgotten language. I just Mm -hmm. didn't know how to do this. I have never caressed anyone before. Because the dating I'd done up to that point had not gotten there, and I had a girlfriend in high school, but that was – it was all making out and then not making out, and then we weren't together anymore. It was just very – the usual high school relationship, but extra trauma on top.
1: Mm-hmm. So that didn't have that. And, and and previous to this, what's the furthest that you had gotten sexually with uh... – a partner.
0: Um, so in that moment of physicality I mentioned earlier, I did touch uh, the the woman's breast, but I had moved too fast and she took her hand, took my gotcha. hand and moved it away. So I I I really was that really like triggered me because I was like, oh, I I did I assault her, you know? And like later I re- I was realized, no, you didn't do that. It was just you know you were just moving a little fast and she wasn't you know offended by it. You know she wasn't like that. You know I just kind of made a mistake. You know I made kind of a, a, a you know, a novice mistake. So being caressed, that level of intimacy, the motion, that, that, um, it's like sexual or sensual intimacy as opposed to just sensuality. Right. Um, where the other person is trying to get something from you, but this, in this case, we were giving to each other. And I remember when she touched my hand, I had, it was, it was like an explosion in my body. And, and I remember, I hear about people saying, you know, I had, I was with so-and-so and and I felt like I got filled up. I literally felt myself filling up. Mm. It was like there was a tank in my body that had always been empty that was now being filled up. And even when it got full, I could just have more. And I just wanted more and more touching and more touching. And I
1: was there a part of you that it scared you that, that, that this wasn't going to go on forever? Oh. Or did that not even enter your mind? That came later. Because <laughs> that would have been the first thing in my mind like, is, I don't get more this of this. This is going to be taken away. <laughs> yes. And that, you know, that, that
0: did come up later. But at the time, and it was really sexually arousing as well, more than I realized. And I remember I had a f- profound physical reaction to that. Um, And I remember she remarked on how sensitive, you're very sensitive. And I think I didn't know, or I couldn't articulate at the time, like I've never been touched that way before. I've never been touched, period. Um, And so that was really amazing. And I remember just being like knocked out by that. And the next time we did a face caress, and this was a little more intimate. We put each other's heads in each other's laps and we would caress our faces. And when I caressed her face, she wouldn't admit this, but I think she fell asleep in my lap. I was pretty sure. And she's supposed to monitor the time. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, I'm holding my boundary of not caretaking her because she said at the beginning of the process, she's in charge of time. So I'm not allowed to say anything about that. So I'm just sitting there. And, and, and then I was like, well, that was my first thought is how, you know, are we going to go over time? And later I, re- I realized it was a problem. Uh, but the other thing that just hit me, was very profound, was like, there's this beautiful woman lying in my lap. you can she trust me. But I couldn't really connect that intellectually until, I think it was that session or the next session. I mentioned that, she did that, and she said, "Yeah, I feel really safe with you." And I went home and cried for about a billion years because no one had ever said that to me in that context. Um, and that is directly like that directly like blows away that childhood that childhood program of like, you, women hate you. Women hate you. They're absolutely disgusted by you. They don't want to be anywhere near you. And loaded, I realized it was the exact opposite was true. Um, so that that experience was just just a heavenly experience. It was the same thing of feeling filled up, and it was it was a, tu- a level of touch I had never experienced before. Um, and I knew, because I know me, that if I thought about the sexual part of the process. Like it would become obsessive and I'd really get my hopes up and if it didn't work out, I'd be devastated. Um, so I took it, as we say in program, one day at a time, I took it one session at a time and I focused all my mental energy on just being present and not thinking about past, the past or the future. Mm-hmm. Also, I knew this would end at some point and I didn't want to think about that either.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So yeah, I, I, I did that and that helped me just stay in each session. In each session um as we went forward and at one point i remember she said thank you for not pushing the the sexual stuff and i think i said oh no problem because i didn't want to bring it up at all because i thought if i brought it up like i was so afraid i would say or do something that would end everything It was that like, catastrophizing i'm like i'm gonna say something she's gonna be like we're done you of know, yeah. my office so i was so kind of boring at the beginning mm-hmm. because i wouldn't tell jokes i was just really like i don't want to Around, I don't want to screw this up. Um, one of the things that one of the experiences I had that changed my life w- with this ex- with with surrogacy was my body image. So, being um, having an eating disorder and being recovery from that, I have body dysmorphia. Very, you know, I really had a hard time showing my body. When I go to the beach, I take off my shirt, but I would be very uncomfortable the whole time the shirt was off because I would be afraid that. Um, I was just, I didn't realize it until this year. I was afraid someone's going to come up and body shame me, which doesn't really happen that often. Right. Uh, and so one of the exercises, she said, we're gonna do a mirror body image exercise. And I'm like, oh, you know, in my head, I'm like, fuck. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she goes, we're going to get in front of the mirror and you're going to be at whatever level, whatever level of undress you're comfortable with and whatever level you're at, I'm at too. Fully clothed, fully naked, whatever. So I thought about it. I said, you know, I think to be brave, but also to be have a little privacy, it's gonna be in my bottoms, my underwear. Um, and, you know, she wouldn't tell me necessarily when things would come up because she was smart enough to know I would obsess about it all week. Mm-hmm. So she would just, not spring it on me, she would give me options. And so one day she's like, you wanna do the body image exercise? I'm like, sure. Fuck fuck in my head, No. don't know. So we get in front of the mirror and I, I can't take Like, I just can't. So I'm like, well, let's ease into it. So she's talking about her body and she's lifting up her shirt or, you know, pulling her arm, you know, sleeve her shirt aside to point at something. And I'm like, you know, this is, we, we, we can't see what we're talking about here. We got to take off clothes. I said, I'm going to, I think I'm going to take off my shirt. I'm spending so much time focusing on being just psyching myself up to take off my shirt that I forget what she's doing. So I take off my shirt. She takes off her shirt, and she's not wearing anything under the shirt. And I freaked out. I just got so, like, triggered. And I looked away, and I was like, I, I, uh, I. oh, I didn't know you were. And it's hilarious. She was so confident and comfortable and casual. She's like, oh, I'm sorry. I, I thought I made that clear. And she did make it clear that she would be, you know. But in my head, when I think of a woman in her underwear, I think of bra and, and bottoms. I don't mm-hmm. think of the being braless. And she said, oh, I don't wear a bra. I was like, oh. Um, and it was the cutest thing ever. 36 years old, we're doing this exercise. This is all totally consent, consent on both sides. And yet I, I say to her, can I look <laughs> 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 It's the cutest thing? And she says, sure. And I think I also had this fear. I would be like lecherous or creepy mm-hmm. or something. And I turn and look and you have got beautiful breasts. And all of a sudden it was like that fear melted away and it didn't matter and we were just two people standing there again. And it, even though I felt a little arousal, it wasn't, because I had that shame around arousal. Mm-hmm. And then I was able to talk about my body and say, well, I don't like my stomach too much and I don't like this. And she said, oh, that's not so bad and all that kind of stuff. And then she started talking about her vulva. <laughs> and I was like, I was just moved that she would be willing to share that with me. I'd never had any woman share that information. And the things that she was, you know, She had had some, um, you know, insecurities about, and that gave me permission to talk about something I had never shared with the woman before because in America it's not that common, is that I'm uncircumcised. Mm -hmm. And I had this fear that saying that out loud would, would, they would, the woman would run away. Of course, I subconsciously looked for stuff of that, like I found some female comedians who would make fun of circus, you know, Mm -hmm. and like I found that kind of stuff. And my hand was just shaking when I talked. I was just so sure that she was going to reject me. And before that, that week leading up to it, I was convinced that when I took my clothes off, she would reject me and I was planning what I was going to say when she did. That's how scared I was. Mm. And I said I was uncircumcised. She said, oh yeah, that's not common in the US. That That was all we had to say about that. It was fine. And there we were, you know, in our underwear and we were perfectly comfortable and I realized how safe I was. And I've actually gone to some nudist events, and I'm looking into being a, like an art model. I have had a complete 180. Wow, that's amazing! Because of that experience, and I, I won't—I don't want to say my body dysmorphia is completely gone and healed, because it could come back. But and it does in little dribs and drabs. But I can say now that I—I'm really not scared of being without my clothes in front of someone anymore. Oh,
1: that is amazing. And so then let's let's talk about the session where you lost your virginity, if you're Absolutely. comfortable talking about it. it. It was
0: a very slow process. And I remember at one point, she mentioned the sexual session, or phase, mm-hmm. there were phases. And I said, we're doing that? Because she had never given me a direct, like, yes, we're doing that. And she said, I'm willing to explore that with you. Now, hearing that now, I realized that that's a yes, but I was in such denial, I didn't know what that meant. And so I called my friend who's a therapist. He said, that's a yes. Oh, it's a provisional yes. She wants to, you know, see how it goes. I was like, okay, all right. It's a yes. Okay. And then she laid out everything we were going to do. She laid it all out. She said, we're going to do some, you know, some, like, we're going to do like hand job, like fingering stuff. Mm -hmm. We're going to um, do oral sex, and then we're going to do penetration. We're going to do intercourse. And I still was like i i i there was a part of me that was in denial like not not on the conscious level but emotionally i realized i didn't even I didn't believe it so i walk in one day and uh she said how do you feel about taking off some clothes and i don't know what we're doing she hasn't said and so we start taking off clothes and we get down to our bottoms and i just i just freak out <laughs> i'm like I, my heart's racing right now and she says it's okay and she gives me a hug and she says okay well we'll get into bed like this for now and then um then we can you know we can take underwear off if you feel comfortable and this is where in this part of the process is where i had my one and only flare up of my disease uh in the love addiction side um i there was vagueness around what our relationship really was mm-hmm. and that vagueness can really going kind to of bring us to our disease and i got into real love addiction. I told her I was falling for her, which I'm really embarrassed. I said that. And I, um, she had basically kind of lovingly said, well, you know, this is how I feel. And I, and I remember I asked her, how do you feel about me? She said, I really like you. You're funny. And you're, Mm -hmm. and I took that to be, I'm in love with you. Mm -hmm. I went home and I made a video about it and I posted it. And like 24 hours later, I I just woke up out of that and I was just, I was just like so mortified and I was just like, I can't believe I did that. Oh my God. You know, what, what is it? And I remember I called my therapist friend and he said, it sounds like it's not what you thought it would be. And he laid out, he said, this is a, this person is essentially a therapist and they're, this is therapy and they're walking through this experience and it's temporary and I remember he said, how do you feel? And he had thrown water on whatever was left of my fantasy. I was cold water. And he said, do, you know, how does that, how does that suit you? And I was completely honest. I said, I feel like I'm not going to get what I want out of this experience and I should just quit. I should, I'm just, I should just be done
1: before I get hurt, quote unquote.
0: And he yeah. said, that's love avoidance, my friend, instead of focusing, like, why don't you just let go of what you think you want, what you think you need and let it be what you actually need. And I said, I would encourage you to keep going with this. So I went to my therapist. I processed it. I wrote it out on, a, on my phone to make sure I wouldn't leave anything out. And I told her everything in that next session. And we spent the whole rest of that session talking. And basically what she said is, I can't date you. Like, I can't see you outside the sessions. It's not allowed. That's not what we're doing here. And she said, we are friends that are practicing. And that line helped me align it. I line my mind around that, and then at, for the rest of the sessions, I was very clear on what we were doing and somehow, in my recovery, I was able to compartmentalize in a healthy way and not allow myself to be drawn into the love addiction part of the of my disease, call it a flare up um so we had that little bump in the road and you know and it was it was an opportunity for me to just be in acceptance of the fact that that's that's part of my disease it's never going to go away mm mm-hmm. um so when we got into bed that next session and we were in our underwear, like we were kissing. And as soon as we started kissing, and we had been kissing for a few sessions at that point, we had talked about it and we said we were ready to do that. That always makes me instantly feel safe and relaxed, mm-hmm. almost in seconds. And I said, Okay, I'm I'm ready now. And I took my underwear off and I handed it to her because I was kind of still kind of flustered, didn't know what to do. And she took it and she's like, Where do I put this? Um and then we got into bed and um She, we just did, she said, we're going to do a light touch of the body, just barely touch the genitals, just a little bit. We're not going to like Mm -hmm. linger on it. And uh, so I got to go first and that was really great. It was the first time I got to touch uh, like bare breasts and play with Mm -hmm. them and kiss. And I said, can I kiss too? She said, sure. And I worked my way down. And a couple of sessions before that, we had, um, we had done the safer sex conversation we did all the boring talk about his CDs, but we also talked about how we discuss with a partner before we have sex, what we're comfortable mm-hmm. with, triggers, turn-ons, and uh, where are we going? What's the intention with this? Mm-hmm. And everything. I, She said I could kiss her, and we were doing full body, and we had had a conversation about how um, uh, cunnilingus, like there's very little chance of the partner who's giving oral to the woman uh, of actually contracting anything hmm. and she knew that I was a virgin so I didn't have anything and I still showed her my STD thing I had gotten mm-hmm. and all that so I thought that it would be okay for me to do something so as I was kissing her I moved further down I kissed her right on her vulva and I stepped over a boundary I had I was not supposed to do that and she got kind of mad more scared not about her but for me because she wasn't expecting it, so it was a little shocking, but she was worried about me because she was is polyamorous. So she has multiple partners that she is very safe sex with. She uses the barrier protection, but she's still a risk for me. And so she said, fluid exchange, you know, we talked about this, and I'm paraphrasing. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. And I said, thank you. For, we always say to each other, thank you for taking care of yourself whenever we step a boundary. She said, I'm taking care of you as well. It was very like rough tone in her voice. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, I really fucked up. Uh, And I just got very flustered and I just stopped there. I didn't continue all the way down like I wanted to. And I I just laid back down like, okay, I really screwed up. And I just like, but then she did it to me. It was a very sensual just touch. And she moved up and down and rubbed her body against mine. And I kind of started to forget about that mistake and it was Mm -hmm. fine. It was no big deal. And then- We just cuddled naked on the bed and it was the most relaxed I'd ever been. And she said, you just get to do this like on a rainy Sunday day, you know, if you want to, and you know, and with your partner, it doesn't necessarily have to be sexual or whatever. And
1: and then he said- And it was probably helpful that you experienced making a mistake. Yes. So that you could deal with, you know, all of the complicated feelings that's going to come up with that and see that it's not the end of the world. I, so when I, f- the first session that we,
0: at the end of the session, we were uh, arranging our schedules and I said, oh, I'm free for the rest of the month. Cause I'm off for that from work. And she said, I don't need to know your schedule three weeks in advance. That's what she said. What I heard her say was, what, uh, what are you presuming we're going to see each other three weeks from now? Like mm-hmm. what you, you idiot. And so like, I thought she was mad at me and I actually went into some sort of episode for five days. I barely slept. I was a nervous wreck. I remember lying on my bed, kind of trembling, and my therapist had given me a number, emergency number to call a couple of days before. I was like, "I'm not going to need this." I ended up calling it mm-hmm. <laughs> this weekend, and I didn't know what was going on with me. Like, what's happening? What is? What is this? And you know, I just needed her, this therapist. She said, "You're you're okay. You're fine." So, she, I told uh, Liz about that, and she said. Okay, and she had, she made, so she added like a little thing. She's like, anytime you think that I'm mad at you, you can text me and I'll tell you that I'm not mad. Mm -hmm. It was really sweet. So that night after the, the, the boundary break with kissing her in the place I shouldn't have, uh, before we were ready for that, uh, I, uh, I, I texted her. I'm I'm really sorry. I know I've crossed a boundary and I'm sorry if I made you mad. And her response was, no worries. You don't have to know everything your partner is thinking and feeling you know, they will tell you when you've stepped over a boundary. So like I had not ruined everything by that, ex- mm-hmm. by doing that. And that was very healing for me to really understand, to be put in that position of, I can make a mistake as you just said. And, and that doesn't end. It doesn't, it's not the end of the world.
1: Yeah. And so, uh, the moment when you, when you lost your yes. uh, virginity, I I'm going to assume it was reverse cowgirl. <laughs> It was
0: cowgirl, actually. Yes, you <laughs> we were all so close. Um, so that was, she said, You know, at the end of that little cuddle thing, he's like, welcome to the erotic phase. And then we had a three-week break because we were both on vacation and my separation anxiety went crazy over that period. So we worked up to it. The first session was manual stimulation. because I was worried that I would have some sort of freak out. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, let's try manual stimulation. So we got naked again. And, you know, she would set up, there would be a little couch in the back, she would pull it out, she'd put a blanket and two pillows out, and at the beginning, I would wait till she started getting undressed, and then I would get undressed. By the end of the process, I was just getting undressed right away and just waiting for the bed to be ready, (laughs) just standing there talking to her naked, which is, you know, really great. But at that moment, um, she said, I'm just gonna, we're gonna kiss and touch like we did last week, and then when you're ready, you say so, and I'm just gonna bring my hand up and start, you know, touching you. I said, okay. I got so into the touching and the kissing at the beginning. She's like, can I bring my hand up? I'm like, oh, yes, sure. And it was the first time I had ever had my penis touched. And I said, can I touch your genitals? She said, sure, go exploring. And that was Christmas for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and to see myself, I, the, the, the judgmental part of my brain, the, the, the left brain completely shut down. And I was in the zone and knew exactly what I needed to do somehow. And I could feel that she was getting more aroused and I started doing all this stuff. And she told me some stuff she wanted, like you touch me this way and all that. But then, you know, just seeing, watching her as I was doing that, seeing her face change, closing her eyes, the little noises she made. And just like seeing that I was, she was enjoying me. And it must have been amazing. It was really incredible. And in fact, the second time, the session after that, when I fingered her for the second time, she turned to me. And this is a woman who's had more experience than anyone. <laughs> she's a polyamorous. She's multiple relationships. She's not a sex expert, but she's been trained, and she's, in, she's, she's a sex educator, and she knows so much about it. She turned to me, looked at me, and she does not blow smoke. This woman is not mm-hmm. capable of that. And she said, you're really good at that. And that, like, well, I never need another compliment in the rest of my life, however long I live. This thing I was terrified. I was like, turns out, you can be good. You can be good at something naturally, and you. I didn't need to know all this stuff. I intellectualized it so much, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then at the end, she just said, "We did it." And I still look back on that. I think of that moment, and I get I tear up a bit because it's like it is teamwork. I learned that sex is teamwork. It's not just about me. It's about us working together. It's a mutual activity, and as a, as an addict, that I had to keep reminding myself of that because as an addict, it's a fantasy in your head. There's no real other person there. You're just there.
1: They're and, a vehicle for you vehicle. to squeeze feelings out that you want to fill the emptiness inside yourself.
0: Exactly. So some addicts will actually act out with other people, and they'll be that fantasy. For me, it was all in my head. So it's like I have the script. I'm the director. I'm the writer. Mm-hmm. It can go as long as I want it to. They're going to say exactly what I'm going to say. But with her, it could be like, I want to do this thing. And she says, no. No. I've never gotten a no before. So what do I do with a no? I guess we do something else. But it was great experience to just realize that there's two people, and both of them are involved in the decision-making. Mm-hmm. So she says, we did it. And she just lies on top of me. And I'm just exhausted. And then that joy comes back up. And then I just get dead again. I'm just, I'm lying there and I start to get angry because I had this amazing experience and I'm sad that I had a blow job. Like I got mad at myself. Like she gave me this great experience and I'm going to tell her I'm sad, but I did anyway. I said, I don't know why I'm feeling sad. And she said, Oh, well, it's something you get to talk with with your therapist, you know, but I walked out of that and I, I came back the next week and I'm like, I just want to let you know, I was very happy with what happened. <laughs> I just mm-hmm. was having a lot of feelings. And she's like, Oh no, happens all the time. Um, So, you know, or something like that.
1: And a lot of people will experience intense negative emotions after they have an orgasm, especially people um, who've experienced sexual trauma. Uh, I think, you know, whether it's trauma that involved touch or trauma that was just, you know, kind of emotional abuse. Right.
0: Yeah. So I, you know, I, I don't know and I can't say for sure if there's sexual trauma, like actual trauma in my past. I think it's more like the shadow of the sexual trauma for my family. Mm-hmm. the more we dug down there, the more we found it was just smoke there. There was just beliefs from my childhood that weren't true. That was mm-hmm. really mo- most of what it was. So per your, per your question, the next session was, I knew was intercourse. And, um, I remember that she just, she, again, she sprung it on me and, uh, uh, we were doing a blow job and then she said how do you want to do, would you like to do something else and she searched. she said can i straddle you now paul i was a porn i was i'm a i'm a recovering porn addict i've seen every porn known to man i've seen if she if you're naked with a woman and she says can i straddle you you would think i knew what that meant but i tell you i was for some reason i was in a naive place and i'm like she wants to get on top of man Know what that she gets on top of me mm-hmm. and she, she, you know, gingerly, she grabs my penis and she holds it and she points it at her crush and looks at me. Like, I'm like, oh, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we started having a cowgirl, which she called female superior, which I guess mm-hmm. is another name for it. And I could not, again, the joy of having that experience with someone um and all the work we did building up that intimacy. And here's this moment. Not that intercourse is better or worse than anything else, but there's so much like built up around intercourse. There's almost everything. Yeah. And I was having this really, like emotionally, I was enjoying it. But as I kind of started to get more present, and I kind of opened my eyes again, I was looking, I'm not feeling anything. I'm not feeling anything at all. And what we came to realize as we did that work is the – the hand job was great, the blow job no problems. When we got to intercourse. Something about intercourse was scaring a part of me. So within 5 seconds of intercourse, I would, my erection would completely go away. And, you know, as men we're taught that our erections are our sexual like mm-hmm. our worth and without them we're nothing. So that was just so difficult and it brought up a lot of shame. Um and if that weren't enough, The first time we did intercourse, I had really built up this agenda. When I came in, I'm like, we're going to have intercourse. And she had tried to give me, uh, she realized when I had lost my erection that first time, we're going to do a little more gradually. So I come in, she said, here, we're going to do something called quiet penetration where uh, I'm going to penetrate you and you're just going to sit in that. The erection could come and go. It doesn't matter. We're just going to get comfortable in that. But I'm like, no, we're going to do full intercourse. We're going to do it. And I had the other experience that every penis haver has is that within, I don't know, a couple minutes of the warming up phase, I I uh, had an orgasm right there and made a mess everywhere. And I remember that I always thought that that would be like a sexy experience. But because it wasn't our intention and, and she got up and got the tissues and she started cleaning herself off. And I'm like, oh, I'm this gross thing. And I made this mess on her. And now I got oh, her and that's gross. And it started building up that shame. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't hear much about what we talked about after that. And it, it you know, the session was over because pretty much because we couldn't practice anymore because, mm-hmm. you know, of the refractory period. And it was we were at the end. So that made me want to run away again. I called my friends. I, I don't think I can go back. My sponsor said, well, I think you value your recovery. So I think you are going to go back. And of course, the next day, I'm like, well, I don't want to go back, but I will. And then the third day, I'm like, okay. And that problem uh, uh, coming too quickly happened another three times in a row without the agenda this time. And I did hold her hand and say, I'm sorry, I wanted to use you to get to a goal. And she she wouldn't accept that. She said, no, you're doing the best that you can. Don't worry about it. We're going to fix this. And so she gave me an exercise to do. I did not know that men could do kegels. We Mm -hmm. can and she taught me how to do them. She, and I found a link online. And that gave me control of that process. And I was able to sit in those sexual feelings. because I realized later, all those years of compulsive masturbation was getting to orgasm as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Getting to the finish line. There was no plateau. I had no plateau to work with, which in sex doesn't work so well. So that naturally happened over our practice as my plateau got longer and longer. I was able to sit with stimulation in a in a like a plateau of arousal and as as you know as we as we worked before we would get to intercourse. So session after session we did these different positions. We did three positions. It was female superior, missionary, and doggy style. And each time within seconds, the erection would be gone. And she said, okay, well we've ruled out the condom, we've ruled out the lube, we've ruled out the position. Like, it's a mental emotional thing and i remember just feeling so depressed and she looked at me and she said i just don't i don't think you're ready and i just got i just was devastated i was so devastated like how long is this going to take like what mental emotional could take a long i mean who knows mm-hmm. i went home and i was so dejected i said well, how what am i going to how am i going to get past this barrier and i remember just doing an audio journal and record uh, these journal entries and just be so distraught and crying. And a voice in my head said, think about how happy you're going to be when you break through this. barrier." And I woke up one morning and my attitude had shifted. Something different happened. And I, I went through that week feeling confident and I walked into that session. It was the first time, I think, my heart wasn't racing right before. And we... Talked for a little bit as we normally do, set up the bed, took off our clothes, did a did, did uh, foreplay, and then we got to intercourse, and we did quiet penetration, and I wanted to move, and she said, hold on, because I got I felt an erection was there, mm-hmm. I'm like, we got to use this before it goes. She said, calm, calm, just hang on. The erections always come back. And then we... You know, we sat there for a while. We switched condoms. We got back, and then I felt the erection there, and I wanted to move. I said, "Can we move?" Sure. And then we had intercourse for the first time. I kept my erection, and I had an orgasm, and I wasn't a virgin anymore. Yay!
1: Yay! <laughs> <laughs> hey.
0: And again, I was just so caught up in that joy. I thought I'd be like emotional and I'd cry and I'd say thank you and hug her, but I just laid there with a the idiot grin on my face, just like happy. And she said, "We did it." I said, yeah, we did it. And I was just like, kind of in my own world for a second, and then I had to kind of learn how to how to like how to live with an identity where I wasn't a virgin that had been part of my identity for so long. I talked about being a virgin in my recovery group, and and you know there were people that would message me after and say, "I really thank you for talking about that." Like I'm not I'm I'm not brave enough to like say it in the meeting, but I am, and thank you. And now, like I had this experience, and it's like well, now what, (laughs) you know, what comes next? And so it took me a little while to kind of accept that this was the beginning of the process and this was just the next step.
1: And where do you feel like you're at today mentally uh, around sex and the potential of a relationship?
0: I would say that you know the whole process lasted about uh, five months of actual sessions. There was a break in between, so six months, and so it's fresh. You know, it was November when we said goodbye for the last time, uh, forever. And so I'm still. It's I I had a interesting experience because for about three weeks I had mourned that that I did. How could you not? Yeah, yeah. I thought it would last longer. But what happened was one of the things uh, uh, – Liz had um, given me a list of things in the last session to do, resources. And one of the things she recommended was something called cuddle parties, this thing you find in L.A. and New York where people will meet up and plutonically cuddle with each other to get physical Mm -hmm. touch, which for a single male is a great resource because we don't have access to physical touch without a partner really in our society. So I wanted to go to one and it ended up being canceled. So I went back two weeks later to this event and it was a tantra event and I was just looking to get some touch and it was the, um, sensual like massage class. And I was like, I don't no, I don't have a partner. I don't know if I want to do that with somebody I don't know, but I sat and watched the videos and it looked interesting. I was like, okay, I think I can do that. And the last video was the erotic massage. And it was tastefully shot, but it was clear what they were doing with each other. And I was like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that, but the other stuff. I started doing the exercises. And something happened that's never happened to me before. I have felt my higher power, God, on my shoulder, connected, gotten ideas or thoughts in from that. But this was different. I felt my higher power come down into me and take me over. I suddenly had perfect abundance. I neither needed nor wanted anything. I was completely comfortable and full. And I just gave to my practicing partner in that session. And I had this very sensual experience. At the very near the end, she asked for the, uh, we asked her if she wanted the erotic part of the massage and she did. And we gave that to her as we were multiple men for one woman, because just to the nature of those things, there's less women there. And, um, I had this sexual experience with this person that I had just met that night, But the entire time I was doing that, I was just filled to the brim with this unconditional love. And if anyone else had been there than this woman, I would have had this I would have done the same thing with that person. Mm-hmm. It was this higher form of spiritual sexuality that is what Tantra partially is about. And uh, it was amazing, and we were all just so comfortable. We were just complete strangers. At the beginning, at the end, we were all sitting around, you know, Hmm. in our little circle, nude, just talking about our experiences. The first time I'd ever been nude in a group. And then we all, like, as if a cooking class had ended, we all put our clothes back on and we went about our separate ways. For two days, I had that unconditional love. And then the disease started to come in. What did I do? Now I've been bad. Uh, This is not part of my plan. I wanted to be in a committed relationship. What's going on? And I called a bunch of people and... You know, and and got reassurance from them, and I said, okay, all right, this was a good experience. My higher power was with me, and I said, I know I gave to this woman. And I remember she hugged me a bunch of times, said, thank you, thank you, you know. And it was like, wow, I I really helped her. She had never been. She said, man, has never given to me like that before. I was like, wow. So in a way, I got to be a surrogate partner to somebody oh, in a yeah. little way because I'd yeah. always wanted to be one. I mean, not always. I mean, I wanted to be one when I was working with Liz. Like, this would be cool. I'd love to do this. But with my issues, I didn't think that would be. Possible. Yeah, yeah. Um, But then I thought, okay, so I got that. But why else did I have this experience? And then I realized the grief around Liz, the loss of being with Liz had peeled. It was gone. Oh, that's so awesome. And then I'm like, okay, God, I'm going to start dating. And that's what I started. I started dating. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so. Well, buddy, I appreciate you coming in and, and sharing all this. Really, really intimate uh, stuff. We, we covered a lot of ground that we've never talked about on the podcast. And uh, I hope anybody who's out there um, who felt alone before they hit play, um, I hope they're, they're feeling less uh, alone now. And I have the feeling there's quite a few people. I appreciate you coming in, Joe. Thank you, Paul. It was quite a pleasure to be on the podcast. Many, many thanks to Joe for coming on and sharing all that stuff. We are sponsored this week by BiOptimizers. Uh, For those of you that take magnesium or wonder whether or not you need to take magnesium, uh, it's a really important mineral. Uh, It's involved in more than 300 chemical processes, or is it processes, in your body. Uh, So if you don't have enough, a lot of stuff can go wrong. You can have trouble sleeping. It can affect your energy, your blood pressure, uh, the strength of your bones. I've experienced it as muscle cramps and kind of uh, restless leg syndrome when I'm trying to sleep. Uh, Well, the thing that's great about Bioptimizers is it has all seven unique forms of magnesium in them. And a lot of the cheaper versions of magnesium don't have that. So uh, check it out. I take two before I go to bed and... uh, it's a nice way to take care of yourself. So you guys get an exclusive offer by going to magbreakthrough.com mental and then use the word mental during checkout to save 10% off and get free shipping. Once again, that's magbreakthrough.com mental and use offer code mental. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself BPD Blonde and about her borderline personality disorder. She writes, Like everyone else has controlling their emotions figured out and I am this bizarre and ugly clown that they all laugh at. Boy, that is intense. That is intense. And people who I've met and talked to Or people who've just filled out surveys about experiencing borderline personality disorder. Um, It just sounds so overwhelming. Uh, Here's a snapshot from from her life. Yelling at my high school boyfriend in a bus station when he was leaving for another, another city for a planned trip. I felt like he was abandoning me. He could not understand because his grandfather had died recently and I was more upset that he was leaving me on the bus than anyone in his family was over the death. Like Marcia Linehan says, living with BPD is like being a burn victim. Every touch feels like agony. People think BPD people love drama, but trust me, I truly hated myself for doing this. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's so important for people to begin to understand what the person with borderline personality disorder, is going through, and not that there, you know, there shouldn't be consequences or boundaries, you know, to encourage them to work on themselves, um, but to to understand what it is that they are up against, that they're not just, you know, the stereotype of the, you know, the hysterical bitch or whatever ugly way you wanna you wanna describe it. They they deserve love and compassion. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Boots Girl, and uh, she writes about her depression, like I'm in a dream where I'm trying to run, but I'm moving in slow motion, and the thing I'm running from is getting closer and closer, but never quite catching me. About her anxiety, if I have any need, I'm the biggest burden that has ever existed. About her anorexia, eating is self-harm, not eating is self-harm. About her OCD, if I can make the rules, the world might become a safe place. Oh, that's such a good one. About her PTSD, if I don't need anything, maybe you won't hurt me anymore. Oh, man. Here's a snapshot from her life. I'm 30 and struggling to navigate how to help care for my mother who was diagnosed with a degenerative neurological disease. I live an hour and a half away from them and drive up every other week to help with my mom's hygiene and spend time with her. I'm in charge of her medical care, making appointments, looking into medical trials, following up with prescriptions, navigating insurance, as well as helping my dad with figuring out the bills. I'm the only one in my friend group, going through caring for a parent currently, and I feel more and more isolated every day. While my friends talk about a trip they're going to take or a dance they stayed up all night at, I have images of wiping my mom's butt or lifting up her breasts to wash underneath them. I constantly feel inadequate in regards to her care because I don't feel patient inside, and it is a struggle sometimes to remain calm, And lovingly meet her needs. I feel like a bad person. My friends will say, You're so strong. And despite that being a compliment, I can't help feeling like an imposter that they just don't know how hard it is for me, or they don't want to have to think that deeply about it. In any case, I feel like I'm in limbo between both the world of my peers and the world of ambiguous grief around caring for someone I love and don't recognize anymore. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, and that is unfortunately something that so many people are going through, caring for a, a parent who's who's in decline. And I just want to say to you and anybody who's going through that, you're not a fraud. Just because somebody is telling you that you're brave or you're strong doesn't mean they're saying you don't have any fear or resentment or uh, you're not feeling burned out. You know it. I, it's like saying to thinking that somebody says, you know, that was so brave of you to go into battle. It doesn't mean that that person wasn't afraid going into battle. And I'm fuck, what you're going through is a battle. That is a battle. It sounds overwhelming. So, sending you some love. And I think what you're feeling inside is totally normal. This is from the Shame and Secrets survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Ghost Sweater. Uh, He identifies as straight. He's in his 20s, was raised in a stable and safe environment, Uh, never been sexually abused, never been physically or emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts. Clocking my father over the head with a blunt object just to stop him from saying whatever insipid, half-cooked, faux-intellectual nonsense is on his mind. Darkest secrets. This isn't a dark secret at all, actually, but one of my cousins and I fell in love with each other when we first met as teenagers, and we expressed it physically over the coming years on what few visits she was able to make from out of state. Nobody in our family knows, and I'm confident they never will. Neither of us have ever felt ashamed about it, and it was and is the most potent affection I have ever felt before or since. She's married now, and I'm in a long-term relationship, but I don't feel jealous, and I can't imagine she is either. I haven't seen her in a handful of years, and we inevitably fall out of contact when she goes back home. My fault always, never hers, and I can only hope she doesn't feel sour about it, but I think I'll fall for her again every time I see her. It's no problem for me. It's just a fact of my personality and has been for 15 years. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I fantasize about having a female twin with whom I have a very intense romantic relationship. In the fantasy... We've either, either been having a sexual relationship since pubescence or we have sex for the first time after moving out of our parents' house. In any event, we are each other's best friends and have never found a connection like ours anywhere else. Through a mutual feeling of being aliens among other humans, we find we are the only partners suitable for one another. I've always felt like an outsider, even though I've been admired, loved, and respected my whole life. I think this fantasy is an expression of my desire and the mutual and complete understanding and romance that I've been denied by default for my whole life, as well as stemming from my my vanity and self-obsession. I love myself a bit too much, it seems. Uh, I feel a little achy sharing this because it's absolutely impossible for it to come true. What if anything do you wish for? In terms of the remotely possible, I wish my extremely attractive ex-girlfriend would invite me to a fancy hotel for cocktails and a nostalgic booty call. I'd never date her again, we were so wrong for each other, but my god, she made vanilla sex feel like the karma fucking sutra. Have you shared these things with others? I've only ever shared any of these things with people I knew wouldn't give a shit about it. It went okay, but there was no catharsis or connection over it, so I keep quiet now. How do you feel after writing these things down? Not so different. I've thought this all through very well. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Don't feel ashamed of incestuous attraction if it comes from a place of sincerity and naturalness. If you find out the attraction is mutual, maybe you should find a quiet place together and express it instead of bottling it up and feeling disgusting and doomed. Just be safe and communicate and think well about what your future will look like if you do. Thank you for sharing that. That's a lot of... uh heavy stuff and complicated, uh, stuff for a lot of people. And it's, it sounds like you, um, you know, you're, you're not struggling with, with self-doubt about it. And, um, and I do think, you know, incest with, with a cousin is on a different level than incest with a, an immediate family member. Um, I've never had relations with a, with a female cousin. I did spend time with a female cousin one time who I thought was attractive, and I did feel a little bit of attraction uh, towards her, but never to the point where I felt like I was going to make a move or, or something. I just felt creepy for, for feeling that. But, I you know, I think that, that can be natural. And she was just so nice at... I'm sure there was just a, you know, that feeling of somebody, somebody who's warm, especially if they're, you know, out of reach, forbidden, whatever. It's like that turbocharges that feeling sometimes. This is a happy moment filled out by wrong kind of love, and she writes, "I do weight training." For example, squats or deadlifts in my home gym, which is a squat rack sat smack in the middle of our tiny living room. I have too too heavy depression to be able to keep up an out-of-the-house training routine. After my training, I spray my ankle and knee wraps and the insides of my shoes with disinfectant spray instead of washing them every single time to preserve them. I let them out to dry before they go back in the cupboard. I love returning into the living room, now ex-gym, with my bowl of salted cornflakes. I would never have allowed myself to eat in the long years of my disordered eating before I started weightlifting. And my sweetened protein shake and smell this particular pleasantly chemical smell of the disinfectant spray and I feel accomplished. Also, I love how my little Scottish terrier Slyly, actually takes a run up to make it up on my vintage sofa where she's not supposed to be. When she does that, I am so proud of her smartness. I don't shoo her off, but let her enjoy her throne. (laughs) Oh, I fucking love that. I fucking love that. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Confused Dreamer. She uh, identifies as straight, uh, but often wonder about having sexual relations with women. She is, in her 30s, was raised, as she says, in a pretty dysfunctional environment, was the victim in one instance of sexual abuse and never reported it, and in another instance some stuff happened, but she doesn't know if it counts. She writes, Sexual play was always around me growing up. From a young age, my cousins played together, and I somehow normalized these actions and did nothing about it. Once in grade six, my older cousin was hanging out with me while my mom was at the bar. We started playing around, which was okay, until the safe word wasn't safe and we wouldn't stop. It didn't go far, but when we left the room, I felt disgusting and ashamed. We spent the rest of the night awkward and not talking much. At a younger age, I think that something else happened, but don't remember exactly. She's been emotionally and physically abused, uh, mostly by, uh, by her mother, and... Um, any positive experiences with abusers? Yes, the incident with my older cousin happened at around 11 years old, and since then we've had, a, we've had good times. We have never acknowledged the incident. Darkest thoughts. I often think about everyone's naked bodies and genitals and wondering what they would look like and feel like darkest secrets. When I was 14, my younger cousin that was seven or eight was interested in touching herself, and while I should have known better, I still thought that it was a normal activity and allowed her to touch me, and she wanted me to touch her. This happened a few times during sleepovers. I feel absolutely disgusted that this happened and still hold guilty feelings as she is now heavily addicted to street drugs and is living a homeless, drug-induced life. Well, to that, I want to say, um, I think you're being hard on yourself. You were a child, and the other thing is, you know, there are tons of people who have experienced uh, whatever you want to call it inappropriate sexual play um, that that don't go on to become drug drug addicts. So you didn't you did not make her a drug addict. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I often fantasize about having all-female orgies or any sort of female sexual activity. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Sorry for all of it. I was a messed-up, depressed, extremely angry teenager. I am sorry to all of you. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I would have had a different different upbringing. Have you shared these things with others? No, I did not because I am ashamed of my actions. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel sad and sick. Well, I want to send you some some love and really encourage you to forgive yourself. And um, you know, so so many people have done stuff in their lives that they regret. And we can choose to stay stuck and hating ourselves. Or, you know, we can forgive ourselves and move on. And the important thing is that you're not doing that stuff anymore. You know, if you were still doing that as an adult, that would be a different story. But um, cut yourself some slack, said the pot to the kettle. Uh, This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Jay Monkey. And uh, she writes... I had a guy wheel out on me once. Seriously. He was riding his bike, got hit by a car, and broke his pelvis. I bathed, fed, and housed him. We had already been dating for two years and had one of those I don't want to be your boyfriend, but I still want to have sex with you relationships. He was uh, a scooter-riding, tight-shirt-wearing, quadrophenia jerk-off. But I was addicted to him. So I bathed, fed, and housed him when he got hit, seeing as he'd have to be in a wheelchair for three months. Then one night, after many unanswered pages, in parentheses, this is dating me, he rolled in at about 3 a.m. I said nothing but grabbed his crutches uh, and rolled out. I assume, yeah, he grabbed his crutches and rolled out. Not a word. I stood there dumbfounded. I ran after him down the alleyway, daggers in my eyes there was a cab waiting for him with a girl in it. The fucker was cheating on me in a wheelchair. I stood at the door of the cab. He rolled down the window and simply said, don't get crazy. Oh my God. Oh my God. Some of these, uh, awful moments I'm, I'm reading are from, from years ago, but, uh, you, you, you guys, and yeah, I'm trying to make you feel guilty, Have been a little slack on filling out the, uh, the awfulsome moments and the happy moments and the loves. So, uh, you know, if you want to help the podcast, go, go fill out some of those. We have tons of shame and secret survey. Uh, I'm way behind on reading those. Um, but the, the other ones, the happy moments, the loves, and the awfulsome moments, we can always use more of those. Uh, This is uh, another shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself 30, going on 7. She identifies as straight. She's in her 20s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment, um, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. I was molested from age 7 to 10 by my older brother who is 5 years older than me. During that time, I was also molested by my favorite uncle, I only have anger for the uncle, especially because everyone in the family knows what a piece of shit he is and no one has done anything about it. An abusive alcoholic who has raped his own daughters, raped and assaulted women, and now cares for his five-year-old granddaughter. Unfortunately, he is doing this in India. If it was here, I would have put an end to it. I still want to do something about it, but I have to wait until my mental health is more stable. Feelings about my brother are confusing. He was my best friend. He taught me so much. My family are immigrants from a village in India, and I am the first American born in the family. We lived in a very strict, traditional Hindu household, so my brother was the only one I could learn about the outside world from, and the only one willing to teach me anything. For a long time, I tried to forget it, and figured it was a mistake because he was such a good brother otherwise, and the sexual abuse did stop. I stayed close to him until I turned 17 and started dating my first boyfriend. I wanted to introduce the love of my life to my favorite brother, but he refused to meet him and acted like a jealous boyfriend. This was my first inkling that something was wrong. He stopped hanging out with me uh, as much and gravitated towards our 16-year-old niece When that inappropriate relationship happened, I realized there was still something wrong with him. I tried to tell him to get help, and he lashed out at me. I haven't spoken to him or seen him in 12 years. I got sick when I started law school. Through therapy, I learned that I had been in survival mode for 22 years and didn't feel anything, so now I have CPTSD and depression. For the past seven years, I've tried many meds, treatments, and therapy, but have only gotten worse. I tried EMDR a couple of years ago, and as a result, had a horrifying revelation. Throughout the years, I had tried to remember how the abuse stopped. I remember trying to ask him to stop, but he said he wouldn't talk to me anymore, so it continued. After connecting the dots, I realized that he had never stopped trying. He just didn't have as many opportunities, and when he did have them, he had tried. Once when I was 11, and again when I was 15 or 16. The most recent one was at age 15 and 16. He acted like it was a mistake. We had fallen asleep in the same bed, and I woke up to him touching me. I yelled at him and told him to never touch me again. Later, I felt guilty for making such a big deal uh, out of a mistake." Uh, she has been uh, emotionally abused. Uh, she writes, um, My mom and dad praised me and even begged,, uh, after she revealed to them they they praised me and even bragged to others that their little girl never cried. Oh no, that's not about the abuse. That's just in 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 general. At the time, I thought I was just stronger than everyone else. Now I know. I was just trying to survive. Any positive experiences with abusers? Yes, a lot of positive experiences, which has made it very hard for me to feel my anger. My brother introduced me to burgers. We aren't allowed to eat beef. So he brought me a McDonald's burger, and we hid in our building stairwell eating the most delicious thing I had ever tasted. It was a taste of freedom. He introduced me to atheism. He told me I was smart. He helped me with homework. He told me I would do great things one day. My father also has his redeeming qualities. He would buy us presents and be very nice sometimes. He was also kind of a hero back in our village in India. He came from poverty with no education, made it to America. He then proceeded to bring his family here has given so much of his money away to poor people in his village and family, so much that we are actually living in poverty in America so he can send money back to India. He's in his 70s and is still working hard, so I respect and admire his work ethic. Darkest thoughts. I think about dying all the time, which is probably so boring, but I can't think of anything else. Darkest secrets. I remember asking my brother for, quote, it. I just said this out loud to a therapist last week for the first time. Thank you for sharing that. And if you haven't listened to the Leah McCord episode yet, um, I recommend you do that because her story reminds me a lot of yours. And I think you would find some comfort uh, in that. Although her abuser was her father. But um Anyway, uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Rough sex and degrading porn. Sharing this makes me feel dirty and disgusting. I think of myself as a very strong-minded, independent feminist. So having those desires feels very dangerous and fucked up to me. And it is incredibly common. And um, you should not shame yourself for that. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone? Uh, Am I giving out too much advice, too many opinions? I suddenly just had a flash of complete self-doubt. I would like to ask my brother why he did what he did. Boy, do I get that one. I have often imagined going to my mom and asking her why, but I know she is a sick person, and I would not get an answer that would be, cathartic or satisfying what if anything do you wish for to feel less pain have you shared these things with others i've shared my experiences with people and it's been a mix of reactions i think initially everyone does the supportive bit but when it comes down to the nitty-gritty of being a support system people have a hard time thank you so much for that you went really really fucking deep and um Word, you are a survivor. You are a survivor, man. And then finally, this is an awful moment filled out by Chris from the Boondocks of Virginia. And he writes Unfortunately for myself and my anus, I had to undergo a humiliating surgery called a sphincterectomy. No, I'm not making any of this up. I was experiencing rectal bleeding and my anal sphincter was simply too tight. So anyway, I'm in stirrups in a surgical room, hating my existence, preparing for a doctor to lay into my throbbing rosebud with a scalpel. When one of the nurses says to me, hey, aren't you Chris? I looked at her and I recognized her as this chick that used to ride the school bus with me years earlier when we were kids. I do a quick metal checklist of my situation, me being prepared for asshole surgery, my small, scared wiener exposed, the fact that she was preparing to shave the taint area around my frightened rosebud. After contemplating the situation for three quarters of a nanosecond, I said, no, I'm Tim. You see, I have a twin brother, so I thought throwing him under the asshole surgery bus was the logical thing to do. She says while starting to shave me, oh, Okay, your chart says otherwise. Uh, A lot of butthole and incest in this episode. Maybe that's what I should have called this one. butthole incest. I got my stomachs growling again. All right, I got to go get something to eat. Uh, I hope you guys got something out of this episode. And never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening.
0: Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody up up in I know some is weird bizarrely way beautifully know is weird bizarrely beautifully, way. beautifully, up bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. way. <laughs> <laughs>